Provider Solutions and Development, a community of experts dedicated to offering holistic career coaching to physicians and clinicians throughout the entire job search. Start the conversation today at psdrecruit.org forward slash JN podcast. Although there's only about 4,000 new cases of amyloid in the U.S. per year, it's treatable and amyloid can cause preserved ejection fraction heart failure, kidney and liver failure, and neuropathy. Even though the diagnosis of amyloid is not that common, one form of the disease, ATTR amyloidosis, caused by transtheratin, is found in as many as 25% of adults over the age of 85 at autopsy. Amyloid is easily diagnosed and should be considered in the differential diagnosis for heart, liver, or kidney failure, and also for neuropathy. Dr. Maury Gertz from the Mayo Clinic speaks with JAMA Clinical Reviews about amyloid. From the JAMA Network, this is JAMA Clinical Reviews, interviews and ideas about innovations in medicine, science, and clinical practice. Here's your host, Ed Livingston. Could you tell us your name and title? My name is Maury Gertz. And I'm a professor of hematology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Great. Could you tell us how common amyloid is and how it generally presents in patients? The various forms of amyloidosis have different incidences. Light chain amyloidosis is approximately 10 per million per year. So we estimate about 4,000 new patients diagnosed with AL amyloidosis annually. We believe that the incidence of hereditary ATTR amyloidosis is approximately one per million per year, so that in a given year, an additional 400 patients will be diagnosed in the United States. Wild-type TTR cardiac amyloidosis really has an unknown incidence, but autopsy studies show that amyloidosis is present in nearly 25% of men over the age of 80, suggesting that this is a widely underdiagnosed disorder whose prevalence is much greater than we once anticipated. That latter point really strikes me because I've known patients who have developed cardiac amyloidosis, and it presents as preserved ejection fraction heart failure, which is a very, very difficult problem and one that's also is increasingly recognized as a cause of heart failure. So could we hone in on that for just a second? Could you tell us a little bit about cardiac amyloid and how it presents and when should clinicians worry about it or make the diagnosis and how is it treated? First, you're absolutely correct. Cardiac amyloidosis as an infiltrate of cardiomyopathy is the classic heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Because systolic function is preserved, it's a really easy diagnosis to overlook. Patient classically develops stiffening of the myocardium, and as a consequence, cardiac filling is poor, end diastolic volume is low. And so even with a very good ejection fraction, cardiac output stroke volume is low. As a consequence, these patients have symptomatic dyspnea on exertion, loss of energy, and when they go for evaluation, either through their internist or cardiologist, echo shows 
a normal EF, uh, these patients invariably do not have coronary artery disease, so there's no ischemia. And so it's oftentimes difficult to even confirm that the dyspnea these patients are having has a cardiac origin. With standard echocardiography, you see thickening of the heart walls. It's pretty easy to misattribute that to hypertension. Even in patients who have no history of hypertension, the fact that hypertension is so often silent, it's easy to tell patients that they have have end-stage hypertensive cardiomyopathy with hypertrophy of the walls, when of course it's not really hypertrophy, it's infiltration. And so the diagnosis can be overlooked. In addition, valvular regurgitation and amyloid at the mitral and tricuspid valves is also pretty common. And these patients can be told that they have hypertrophy and heart failure due to valvular regurgitation. These patients present with typical heart failure, but it's not the typical forward heart failure. Exertional dyspnea, progressive fatigue, inability to complete the activities of daily living are typical. They'll often be seen by a cardiologist. They'll get a treadmill test or they'll get some type of provocative testing for ischemia and pass it with flying colors because they don't have ischemia. We'll perform poorly on the treadmill because they're not going to be able to walk more than three minutes because of their very low stroke volume. And unless one does specialized diastolic studies looking for the velocity of filling of the ventricular chambers in diastole, the diagnosis can be overlooked. Over the years, I've seen patients told that they had depression as a cause because the echo is so unremarkable or referred from a cardiologist to a pulmonologist saying it's non-cardiac dyspnea. I acknowledge you have dyspnea, but it's clearly not due to your heart. Yeah, my sensitivity about this is that I know a patient who developed cardiac failure, had no particular reason for it. Early on in her course was diagnosed with preserved ejection fraction cardiac failure, which in its own right was a bad diagnosis because you can't do much about it. And then went through a workup and course of her disease that lasted about nine months before the diagnosis of amyloid cardiomyopathy was made. And then that introduced a whole new sequence of issues and treatments and all that. What really struck me was that it took a very long time to arrive at the diagnosis of amyloid cardiac disease. So should amyloid be considered in every patient who has preserved ejection heart failure, or are there certain tip-offs that someone should go looking for it? And then once you suspect it, how's that diagnosis made? So you raised a lot of really important points. The median diagnostic delay for patients from onset of symptoms is over a year. And in cardiac amyloid, that usually means irreversible loss of myocardium, which no matter how good the treatment is, it can be restored. Secondly, when I started, you miss a diagnosis of amyloidosis. It really wasn't that big a deal because there was no effective therapy. But over the last 15 years, a whole host of effective therapies have been developed that demonstrate improved survival. And so fail to make a diagnosis really doesn't serve the patient because it really costs them years of life and quality of life. So the real question is, how do you get something this rare into the workflow? And so 
in terms of considering the diagnosis of amyloid, the real question to me is, well, how invasive do you have to get to do the screening? And I think that in a patient with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, it's very common for me to see that cardiologists regularly will consider hemochromatosis and they'll check iron levels. They've got that in their workflow. They think about sarcoidosis and I see them doing appropriate diagnostic testing, but for some reason, amyloid's not in the workflow and it's easy to put in the screening. So if you're seeing a patient who has heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, preferably with some wall thickening. There's really only two tests a cardiologist needs to incorporate to at least set them on the right track. Number one is a simple blood test, an immunoglobulin light chain assay, period. 99% of AL cardiac amyloid will have a distorted ratio. And so considering amyloid in the diagnosis doesn't mean you have to do invasive testing, biopsies, or cath. AL amyloid will usually be picked up with the light chain ratio. Actually, the median light chain abnormality is like eight times normal. So it's not a subtle or borderline blood test. It's just a question of putting into your, if you will, order set for heart failure and preserved ejection fraction, the light chain. And then we get to the big one, which is the wild type TTR cardiac amyloid that used to be called senile cardiac amyloid or senile systemic amyloid. Older men, nine to one, over women who have heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, and there is treatment for it. And for them, it's a technetium pyrophosphate scan. And a technetium pyrophosphate scan is 50-year-old technology. When I started, it used to be called a bone scan. And we ordered it on every patient with prostate cancer and breast cancer looking for bony metastasis. The test was supplanted by CT and PET imaging, so it wasn't used for that purpose, bone metastasis, but it was revived when it became clear that all cardiac TTR amyloid have increased myocardial uptake on the technetium pyrophosphate scan. This scan was available at every nuclear medicine laboratory in the United States until 50 years ago. In some centers, probably hasn't been used in 10 or 15 years, but it's a very inexpensive nuclear medicine imaging test and is a wonderful screen if you have the right phenotype, which is heart failure preserved ejection fraction, thickened cardiac walls, because they get very thick, a normal free light chain ratio. You can do that imaging, and that is accepted as a diagnosis without doing a biopsy. Once a diagnosis is made, what are the treatments? So for AL amyloidosis, the standard of care is recognizing that it's light chains being deposited in the heart. The source of the light chains are clonal plasma cells in the marrow. So the standard of care is getting rid of those clonal plasma cells so that the precursor light chain is eliminated and further amyloid won't be deposited. Clonal plasma cell disorders are the most common being multiple myeloma. Virtually all the treatments for AL amyloidosis are designed to destroy plasma cells, so it's all borrowed therapies from multiple myeloma. Systemic chemotherapy, peripheral blood stem cell transplantation, monoclonal antibodies against plasma cells, 
There are research trials underway that are looking at antibodies that will attempt to bind and dissolve the amyloid, but none of those have been demonstrated to be beneficial. For TTR inherited amyloidosis, the inherited cardiomyopathies, there are gene silencing therapies that are available that are administered to patients, and it silences the mutant TTR gene. The levels of TTR in the blood fall, and that's the precursor to the amyloid. And it's been demonstrated in the neuropathic inherited amyloids that that improves quality of life and eliminates the decline in neurological impairment. For the wild-type TTR, there's one approved agent, that being tefamidus. And tefamidus has been shown to improve a primary endpoint of cardiac hospitalization and survival and actually improves it by 30%. So that's a pretty substantial reduction in hazard. In addition, patients who have amyloidosis are treated different from other cardiomyopathies. These patients have very poor tolerance of beta blockers. And so in our practice, we would never use a beta blocker to manage a tachyarrhythmia or tachycardia. In addition, afterload reduction with ACEs or ARBs have never been shown to be effective for infiltrative cardiomyopathies. And these patients develop hypotension to a significant degree. So knowing the diagnosis in addition to effective therapy are what not to do, what to avoid. These patients generally don't show much benefit with defibrillators because the defibrillator can't capture a high-grade ventricular arrhythmia, so there's no proof of survival benefit. And even this issue about whether they can be successfully paced is still controversial. So there's a lot of supportive care issues that are at variance with the standard of care for ischemic cardiomyopathy. Do they wind up needing a transplant? How does it end? Cardiac transplantation is done for this, but it's limited. These patients are desperately ill, and it's a life-saving procedure. But when you compare it to heart transplant for native cardiomyopathy, primary cardiomyopathy, survivals are not as good because these patients often will develop amyloid outside the heart that compromises their survival, and they're at risk of developing recurrent amyloid in the transplanted organ. So given the organ shortage that we have, they oftentimes don't fall very high on the priority list because the five-year and 10-year graft survivals aren't what they are with viral cardiomyopathies. But the literature is replete with successful transplantation done for wild-type TTR, mutant TTR, and AL amyloidosis. But again, if someone shows up with renal and cardiac and liver amyloid, it's of little value to do a cardiac transplant. And if you don't have control of the underlying plasma cell dyscrasia, you're going to get recurrent disease. I'm assuming that after cardiac, the next most common presentation for amyloid is kidney disease. Is that true? It is true. And it's almost as high. I mean, cardiac is 70%. Renal is in the high 60s. But once again, you have this issue of failure to recognize. So these patients will go to nephrologists typically because the proteinuria is picked up 
and they see a patient with nephrotic syndrome, and their differential diagnosis on paper is minimal change glomerulopathy, membranoproliferative membranous. Patients get these trial of steroids and then ultimately go to renal biopsy, and everyone's surprised where once again, for renal amyloid, if as part of the initial evaluation, an immunoglobulin light chain test was performed and found to be abnormal, that narrows the diagnosis of proteinuria down to three diagnoses. And those would be myeloma cast nephropathy, AL amyloidosis, and finally, the rare kappa light chain deposition disease. But the key is getting the light chain as part of the evaluation. And if you do that, just like with heart amyloid, you don't need to do a biopsy. You don't need to do a kidney biopsy anyway. You would diagnose it either by finding it in the bone marrow or the skin or the lip or the fat and avoid the potential risks of uh, ultrasound-guided renal biopsy and diagnostic delay is avoided. When in the workup should serum proteins be looked at? So again, it depends on the presence. If a patient shows up with nephrotic syndrome to the nephrologist and they've been a diabetic for 12 years, there's just no reason to do that test. False positive is probably going to be more than the patients that actually have it. But seeing an adult with nephrotic syndrome that has no alternative explanation, in fact, if you look at patients over the age of 50, non-diabetics, 10% of renal biopsies in the United States are amyloid. So that's a yield of one in 10. So if you've got heavy proteinuria while they're doing their ANCA testing and looking at the urine sediment for CAS, getting a free light chain blood test, which is commercially available everywhere, I think is rational. And I think the same for the infiltrative cardiomyopathies. If you're working up a patient with thick walls and you're looking for sarcoid or mucopolysaccharidosis or hemochromatosis, you can throw in a light chain assay blood test because it will really redirect your thinking. And this is a very inexpensive test, if I recall correctly. <laughs> They're all relative. I think the test runs between 150 and $200, but it's done on a test kit, nephilometry, which is the same technique done for quantitative immunoglobulins. And as a consequence, relative to what we spend on therapy imaging, it is relatively inexpensive. Yeah. I mean, that's my point. Even at a couple of hundred dollars, if you delay the diagnosis for a few months and wind up with a whole lot of other tests or unnecessary treatments, it'd be cheap in the long run. And it sounds like this is a fairly reliable test for picking up one of these diseases. Correct. Actually, if the light chains were normal, I would strongly discourage pursuing the diagnosis because the false negative rate's less than 1%. Yeah. And also every clinician is guided by their last experience. And I had this experience with the one patient I talked about earlier with the cardiac amyloid. That diagnosis wasn't made until that patient had a cardiac biopsy. And I remember they came to me and asked me about having this biopsy and what are the risks. And, you know, it's a fairly safe procedure, but for someone to stick a catheter in your heart and take a chunk out of it is kind of a scary proposition. But that's what had to happen before this woman got the diagnosis. What you're describing is actually the most common pathway. But to rephrase it, if indeed there was testing done to at least lead to the suspicion, then the cardiac biopsy probably could have been avoided and it could have been figured out in a less invasive and less expensive manner. What about liver disease, liver amyloid? How does that present and 
like these other entities? When should you consider it? So that is typically the patient's presenting symptoms are like other liver diseases, unexplained weight loss, early satiety, and then usually they get a chemistry analysis and the chemistry invariably shows an elevation of the alkaline phosphatase. And on physical exam, there should be palpable hepatomegaly and the liver is hard. I mean, it's like granite. Uh, This is not a congested liver from heart failure. And it's not uh, micronodular cirrhotic liver. Uh, This is an infiltrated liver, and the amyloid makes the liver very, very firm. So you have hepatomegaly, you have a high alk fast, and the next thing is imaging's normal. The liver's big, but there are no filling defects. There's no confusion with metastatic malignancy. Portal hypertension, rare. If you actually see it, the peripheral blood film will show evidence of splenic hypofunction with the presence of howl jolly bodies because the spleen also gets involved and it loses that ability to cull and pit the red blood cell. And you will see that a high proportion of these patients will go to liver biopsy, but that's a risky procedure because bleeding has been reported with liver biopsy. And once again, while you're doing their antimitochondrial antibody and looking for sclerosing cholangitis, adding the immunoglobulin-free light chain once again will just say, oh, goodness gracious, that's a surprise. And then you can do some less risky biopsy and come up with the diagnosis. But the clinical manifestations are like any chronic liver disorder. Apart from cardiac, liver, and kidney disease. Are there other clinical manifestations of amyloid that clinicians should be aware of? Peripheral neuropathy. Peripheral neuropathy in patients that aren't diabetic and have no toxin exposure is also a big one for us. And here it gets even harder because even if you do the light chain assay and you see an abnormal monoclonal protein with the peripheral neuropathy, They'll usually go to a neurologist, and then the neurologist will think, well, monoclonal gammopathy-associated neuropathy, IV immunoglobulin, corticosteroid trials, total plasma exchange without any screening studies to say, gee, could there be amyloid? And when I say screening studies, simple things like peripheral neuropathy with weight loss, peripheral neuropathy with proteinuria, peripheral neuropathy with bilateral carpal tunnel syndrome, or autonomic neuropathy, orthostatic hypotension, unexplained diarrhea, things that make the neuropathy not so straightforward where further screening is warranted. But the neuropathies, you you mentioned cardiac taking nine months to a year for diagnosis. The neuropathies take two to three years for diagnosis because getting the tissue is not so easy. Does the neuropathy present Like any other neuropathy, is it distal? Is it symmetric, asymmetric? You're exactly right. It is distal and it's symmetric, and it's combined axonal and demyelinating. Basically, the clinical picture really looks a lot like diabetic neuropathy, but of course, they're not diabetic. But the mechanism of action where the vasonervorum become occluded, leading to demyelination and amyloid causes small fiber axonal damage, ends up presenting the way a diabetic looks. But yes, it's symmetric, ascending, and length dependent. So it's always feet before hands, unless there's carpal tunnel syndrome. And then by the time the neuropathy hits the top of the calf, 
then the hands start to go. Is there any other aspects of amyloid that we should discuss that we haven't touched upon? For a disease this rare, if you consider it in patients with cardiac, renal, liver, and nerve, it'd be quite the success. For hematologists and oncologists, they often see patients with monoclonal gammopathies and diagnose them as MGUS or alternatively smoldering myeloma, and then put them on a monitoring schedule to look for anemia, lytic bone disease, changes in the serum creatinine. Some of these patients, about a 20th of them, will develop heart failure or proteinuria, which the hematologist-oncologist is not looking for. They're focused on bone and kidney and myeloma-defining events. And as these patients develop systemic amyloidosis because of their monoclonal gammopathy, they also end up with a diagnostic delay because the thought is, MGUS, that only becomes multiple myeloma, but in fact, those patients develop amyloid as well. How'd you get interested in this? Well, the institution has actually had a long history of an interest in amyloidosis dating back to pathologists in the mid-40s. So the truth is, I was fortunate enough to inherit an extremely rich practice that already we're seeing fair numbers of patients with amyloidosis. And because I'm a clinician, this whole business of a hematologist dealing with a lot of cardiac, renal, and nerve made me a better than average internist. I'm pretty happy with my clinical skills. It's certainly the the career I think was not achievable without being in an institution that sees large numbers of patients referred with unknown problems. Can you think of anything else we should discuss? No, I I think the big issue for this article is that we've got treatment. And so missing the diagnosis is no longer acceptable. And there are ways to get the diagnosis into your workflow to at least alert you to that possibility. Because the big deal is get it before diagnostic delay results in irreversible decline in organ function. So I think that's the message that we want to deliver to primary care is that when they're at the end of the road of their diagnostic journey and they're, they're not getting anywhere for some of these diseases of the heart or the kidney or the liver or a neuropathy, that there's something simple that they can try and it's not expensive, it's not complicated, and they can rule out the disease. If it's positive, they can go down a more complicated pathway. But I think that's a great message for our readership that there are simple things you can consider and that when you're stuck, you should probably get those tests. I agree. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much. Amyloidosis should be considered in the differential diagnosis of adult non-diabetic nephrotic syndrome, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, particularly if restrictive features are present, unexplained hepatomegaly without imaging abnormalities, and peripheral neuropathy with distal sensory symptoms such as numbness, paresthesias, and dysthesias. Oftentimes, the diagnosis and staging of amyloid can be performed using simple blood testing alone. Therapeutic decision-making for how to treat amyloidosis chooses between high-dose chemotherapy and stem cell transplantation or bortezomib-based chemotherapy. For TTR amyloidosis, there are three FDA-approved therapies depending on the clinical phenotype. 
Outcomes from amyloidosis are adversely affected by delayed diagnosis resulting from not recognizing the characteristic syndromes. Early diagnosis in amyloidosis allows for effective chemotherapy to improve organ function. When TTR amyloidosis is recognized before advanced organ dysfunction develops, a patient's quality of life can be improved using gene silencers or stabilizers. I hope you enjoyed this discussion about amyloidosis. Today's episode was produced by Shelley Steffens. Our audio team here at JAMA include Jesse McCorders, Daniel Morrow, Lisa Harden, and Mike Berkowitz, our deputy editor for electronic media here at the JAMA Network. Once again, I'm Ed Livingston, deputy editor for clinical reviews and education at JAMA. Thanks for listening.